This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. Hello, cleantech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community and do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. So Surrey, BC, is, um, it's on the coast. It's in a uh, river delta. Um, it has extensive history of protecting from the sea level rise um, or from you know, sea uh, flooding. It has a, an extensive dike system, but it also has riverine flooding problems. And um, I think 30% of the land mass, land area of Surrey, which is a big city, um, is actually in the coastal floodplain that's at risk. <laughs> so... They're kind of looking at that and going, well, we probably have to do something about this because, you know, a meter of sea level rise plus, you know, uh, another meter of storm surge, if we get that, get a nice specific storm coming in, a third of the city is in deep trouble, um, including a, a very rich you know, community called uh, Crescent Beach. Um, now, Surrey, back in, 90, in 2005, started the Coastal Flood um, Adaptations strategy program. I think it was, uh, that's what CFAS stands for. And they basically did this process. They got a bunch of people, they did a bunch of studies, they did a bunch of projections, did a bunch of time, you know, perspectives out and different degrees of flooding perspectives and different risks. And then they did a bunch of adaptation stuff. And I, you and I talked about this, I think the second time we talked, we talked about this, um, which was they actually surveyed um, people and they didn't think that people would want to talk about managed retreat. They assumed that everybody want um, protect and accommodate, mm. but the city as a whole preferred retreat. And even for the affected homeowners in the areas which would be areas where retreat was an option, it was the second choice, not the last choice, or not a choice at all. And this surprised the people doing the study, it surprised the urban leaders of Surrey, and they weren't ready to talk about managed retreat at length. And so that caused a lot of disruption in their process. And they you know, went over budget and over time and stuff because they were surprised because their citizens said, no, let's back away. So it was an, a really interesting thing. And, and all the people we've spoken to, including you, were talking about you know, manage retreat is a difficult conversation. People don't want to retreat, but there appears to have been a sea change around 2015, you know, plus or minus three years, where all of a sudden people, communities are much more A, aware of it, and B, open to it. Are you seeing something similar in the United States or have other comments around that? Absolutely. We're seeing a very similar pattern in the United States. Um, Hurricane Sandy struck New York in 2012. So in 2012, 2013, we were having lots of conversations about retreat and very 
I mean, the response was not very positive, right? People did not want to talk about retreat, right? It was all, we're going to build back, build back strong. We'll never abandon the waterfront, right? Uh, very much focused on rebuilding and rebuilding more. And 2019, uh, Columbia University hosts Manage Retreat Conference, right? So same city, New York City, here's 150 people presenting on Manage Retreat research and practitioners talking about their efforts in retreat and what they need in their communities and all this open dialogue starting about how do we address this and how do we think about this moving forward? Uh, we've seen networks start up on this in practitioners and with academics. We're seeing a lot more discussion on this. The number of, just as an academic, the number of academic articles on this is growing exponentially. So there's significant more awareness of this and there's a significant discussion that's been happening in the open. And part of this, I, I suspect that there's actually a much larger number of people who want to relocate or who would support it if it were an option, then we give it credit for. The people who resist and say, I will never leave my home, right? Only over my dead body. They're, they're easy to find, uh, they're vocal, right? And they show up a lot in the news articles. And so that's the narrative. That's the narrative around retreat is no one wants to relocate and this is being forced on them by the government. But if you dig in and you look at some of those news articles, there's also interviews of people who really want to leave, who don't want to stay in their home, who feel stuck in their home, who feel trapped, who feel like they don't have any other options, and who really want and need government support to, to get out of a really risky situation. But how do we find those people, right? Unless they happen to talk to a news, news you know, a reporter, how do we find them? How do we find those communities? How do we make sure we're not walking into a Surrey planning process and assuming that people don't want retreat, right? Um, a lot of places don't even want to use the word retreat. So, you know, I've given presentations in communities where I've been asked not to say the words retreat, which is, as a retreat scholar, very difficult. Um, so how do you, you know, how do you... Why are, they, why are you even there if they don't Yeah, want exactly. To you know, well, we talk about climate adaptation more generally or, you know, what options are available uh, sort of subtly at the end. By the way, you know, also, uh, also an option is to do this. Uh, and it's... It's difficult though to, if you're not even gonna start the conversation, how do you know how people will react and how they will think about it? Uh, it also depends on what scale you're having the conversation at, right? An individual homeowner might not want to give up that home, but they might be perfectly willing to discuss a citywide plan over the next three decades that eventually requires them to leave their home, right? Maybe, maybe they don't want to be forced out today or this decade, but they're willing to talk about it in the future at some future point, if things get bad, when things happen. So there's, there's good research that shows that the scale that you talk about and the timeline scale that you talk about these things also really matters. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a difficult area to figure out how you start those conversations uh, and to know in advance, right, how people are going to react. You kind of you can't know in advance whether they're going to hate it or love it as an idea. Yeah, our second conversation, I introduced you to John Cook, a cognitive scientist. And you know, one of the things that John talks about, John is um, you know, well known uh, to the audience of this as the founder of Skeptical Science, the you know, uh, website that debunks a lot of the myths about climate change um in his cranky uncle book which I, I hope that you've had a chance to at least skim at some point um he you know has a cartoon where he talks about the conspiracy of silence mm. where people assume that other people don't want to talk about climate change but that's not actually the case so everybody kind of stays silent because they don't figured other people don't believe it or don't buy into it don't accept it you know now john's doing a lot of stuff on covid but i think the 
same context of don't assume that people don't want to talk about it is there. Find graceful ways to introduce the subject, but introduce the subject. Um, but let's pull on that thread, though, because I introduced you to John because as a cognitive scientist, you he was doing stuff that was interesting to you, and you were starting to say you had some interesting interest in that. And then he recommended some people to talk to. And you've subsequently had a bunch of really good conversations with cognitive scientists about communication in this space. And, you know, I don't think you and I have had a chance to talk about that. I'd really like to hear who you've been talking to and what insights you've been gaining, what early thoughts are emerging from that. Yeah, gosh. Okay, now we're going to uh, just highlight my poor memory for people's names, uh, which I will apologize in advance to anyone who I forget or who I mispronounce their name. But uh, yeah, I've been having great conversations as a result of this. This started a whole chain reaction that is still ongoing. I'm still getting recommendations for, oh, you really talked to this person in these you know, these places and whatnot. And uh, and it's fascinating. So one of the reasons I, I you know asked you to put me in touch with John Cook and to start this conversation is that manager retreat is a really emotional issue. People have really strong attachments to place. They have really strong attachments to home and to their community. And so it can be really difficult to think about how do we relocate. And uh, manager retreat research is often done by people in geography or public policy or natural hazards, uh, even sometimes in social science. Uh, But trying to reach out to include more, even more researchers from other disciplines. So people like behavioral scientists, uh, psychologists, because I'm really interested in, you know, the, some of the psychology, like, you know, I kind of joke, but there's, there's a homeowner in Mississippi somewhere who has rebuilt the home 34 times in the last 32 years and in the floodplain. And I just, I really want to know what's going on there. Like, why? <laughs> why yes. is that happening? What, what is the psychology behind that that says, this is a good idea? Like, 35, that's the charm. I, I just really want to understand. And I also want to understand the people who, you know, who feel trapped. They feel stuck. They want to buy out because they feel stuck. And I want to know why do they feel stuck? You know, what is it that make, is making them feel like they don't have any options? Is it finances? Is it that they, you know, have such strong ties to community? I don't know. What, what is driving that? And then also, how do people just make choices is really important with adaptation. So often, if people are considering retreat, it's so often, even if they're considering retreat, and even if they kind of want retreat, they don't really want retreat. They just see it as like, well, none of the options are great. (laughs) And I can stay here and get flooded. I can build a giant wall that'll block my view of the ocean, which is what I wanted in the first place. Uh, Or I can leave. And how do we think about people making decisions in that, that really difficult space? And so it's been fascinating talking to other people who think about messaging in terms of what are the, what's the language we're using. So as you and I talked, is it planned? Is it strategic? Is it relocation? Is it, you know, uh, land use? Like do we talk about zoning in some places, that's a good thing. In some places that's a terrible thing. So how do we, you know, what language do we, we think about using uh, is really important. The framing, uh, talking to people a lot about narratives, like how do we frame it as a story? So, this goes back to, you know, are we talking about you have to move today you know, or this year? Or is it, let's talk about a plan for the city and 50 years from now, right? These areas of town, yes, I recognize you live there, but these areas of town may not be here anymore. Uh, you know, is it post-disaster? Is it pre-disaster? How do we, how do we tell a story about that is really important. Um, and then also, how do you frame the choices in some way that makes people feel like they do have 
some choices, that it's not something that's being totally imposed top down. And to circle back to the very beginning of our conversation, I don't know if this is unique to the U.S., if, if we're so uh, you know, autonomous and we want so much independent, every person make their own decision, or if this is more universal, but giving people options so they feel like they truly have choices can help them be happier with any of the choices that they're taking. Uh, not give them too many, but give them a, give them a few so that they're not feeling like they're forced into one can be important. And all of those are, are things that are going to be very difficult to do in the retreat context. But, and what mostly what I learned is that a lot of the research is ongoing. <laughs> so a lot of these questions are things we still don't know in terms of how do people really make these decisions? How do their emotions play in? How do they consume these narratives? And how do, you know, academics and politicians and journalists frame these narratives, how are we creating them is also important and uh, still under-researched. Well, it's fascinating because, um, you know, Kahneman, you know, I started on a big thread of um, looking through the underpinnings of behavioral economics mm -hmm. um, in the past year, partly because um, I'd been aware of and reading behavioral economics papers for a few years. It was fundamental to the way I frame um, what things will be successful in terms of technological or societal transformations um, is the insights that come out of that. Uh, and I stumbled across that probably because of behavioral economics understanding of property valuation, perception mm. of property valuation. Uh, people have, um, there's a, uh, uh, I forget the explicit name for it, but in, um, in behavioral economics, people have a, if they've done any improvement to a property, they consider that to be of a high monetary value. Mm -hmm. um, whether they've painted their house or put a shed up or uh, put a, a path in or put a small wall in, they think that increases the property value by 20% and nobody else cares about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, a lot of the, this uh, came out of some work I was doing around um, wind farm placement and people's beliefs that wind farms were and potential wind farms were diminishing their property values. You know, the, the hedonics economic analysis of what factors actually impacted property values um, near wind farms or, or elsewhere showed that wind farms, if anything, had a slight positive impact on, wind, on average property values, regardless of distance. But people believe that the improvement to their properties had been eliminated by the wind farm. They weren't getting as much money as they thought the properties were worth. And there were a bunch of people who were willing to support them in, in this delusion. Mm -hmm. um, the Pulling that forward, though, uh, Kahneman, uh, I read the Kahneman work, uh, which is the, behavior, the psychologist whose work completely overturned our understanding of economics won a Nobel Prize for this. He was a, since the 60s, he was doing research into how people actually do make decisions. How they actually, the brains actually work as opposed to what they believe. And one of the things that staggers me today is that, you know, there's a class of economists and people who, um, you know, study economics who still reject everything that Kahneman came up with and are still asserting classical decision-making perspectives for humans, which are being proven empirically to be completely wrong. So even in 2020, we have people projecting reasons why people do things, which completely ignore 50 years of research in this space. 
So it's not surprising that in your conversations with um, cognitive researchers, they're saying, yeah, the research is still going on because there's still a lot of people who are rejecting the research, bizarrely. Yeah, that's and, and you know, you struck on a really important element there, which is home values and people's perceptions of their home values. Uh, you know, do they think that the, if the government offers to purchase their home in a floodplain, do people think that offer is fair? Well, in the U.S., the government is going to offer fair market value. So basically, what would you know? What's a Zillow price, or what's what does the appraiser say your house would have been worth before it got flooded? And you know, not surprisingly, people often don't agree with that. Right? Anyone who has sold a home and has seen the appraiser's value and thought, nope, right? Uh, they they recognize that feeling. And and it's interesting because there's so many. Uh, of these emotional, not, I mean, I want to say irrational, but it's not irrational, right? It's just a, an emotional, non-classic economics reason for why you think your home is worth more than the market might. But then there's also all these other things influencing it. In the U.S., we talk a lot about, you know, home, how your home values might be affected by disclosure of risk. So some states in the U.S. require home sellers to tell home buyers if their house is in a floodplain and if it's been flooded before and what the flood risk is. And other states do not require that. So, you know, Florida, no risk disclosure is required. So oh my goodness. Why does that, know. Yeah. I, I spent three months on contract in Florida and I realized that something um, about Florida, which I had not known before that, um, which was that uh, real estate in Florida is a blood sport. <laughs> It is the most vicious set of mm-hmm. economic fighting I've ever seen. Oh my God. There's an, a brief aside, there's an entire class of small, tiny lots that are at the end of lots, but underwater. And most people's mm. docks and the intercoastal are on those secondary mm-hmm. lots. But homeowners frequently don't know that, don't pay taxes. And so people go around buying up those half lots mm. at tax auctions and then coming to the homeowner and saying, well, um, you're using my land inappropriately for the dock, give me $20,000 or I'll tear my, the, the property, the, the mm. dock you've improperly built on my land. Oh, it's just nasty. Oh, yeah. That's so terrible. And well, and it speaks to larger issues about, you know, disclosure and what do home buyers really know, you know, or not know, and what can we expect them to know or not know, right? Like, do we ex- actually expect them to read every clause in the con- you know, contract? Do we expect them to, to know those things or not? Uh, but it's, you know, we've had a lot of flood risk maps come out, uh, different nonprofits and companies providing all these kinds of risk awareness maps. And routinely journalists will ask, well, but if we disclose the risk, won't people's property values go down? And I think, well, yeah, they probably should. <laughs> like, like, what's the alternative, right? The alternative is that we don't tell people where the risk is and that we trick homeowners, home buyers into buying risky properties. Like, that's the, is that the preferred alternative? Because that seems like a terrible idea to me, just, you know, offhand. Um, but, but it's really difficult because everyone has bought into this idea that we have to improve property values and we need to increase them. And in some places, they're probably overvalued because people aren't aware of the risks that, or aren't aware of these other you know, pieces uh, that go with them. Uh, and, and the second thing that goes with that is, of course, in the U.S., this huge conversation around flood insurance and how much flood insurance is subsidized by the federal government, by federal taxpayers, and how much should it be subsidized? And, you know, who should it be subsidized for? Uh, you know, should everyone get a subsidy or only some people? And 
So there's huge uncertainty around flood insurance and if flood insurance rates became actuarial, if they really represented the risk that people are facing in their homes, you know, the consensus is that large swaths of the U.S. coast would be just unaffordable for the average person. Uh, Insurance rates would, you know, one estimate I saw that was extreme said people might go from paying Five hundred dollars a year to twenty-five thousand dollars a year in flood insurance. So that's a you know massive jump in. I'm sure that was the most extreme example they could find, but yeah. you know, it could be a real big difference. And so, how will that affect future flood? You know, so people who don't want to relocate right now might be perfectly happy to relocate if they had to pay twenty thousand dollars a year in flood insurance. Um, I don't know. So, so I always find it interesting in terms of how we think about our attachment and what our homes are worth and how those are shaped so much by these big external policy issues by the market. And then also by these emotional, you know, I painted the walls and I planted the garden and I, you know, love this home. So I value it as more. Uh, And how do we, how do you try to unravel all of that when you're thinking about risk and relocation is, it's why it's such a fascinating area to research and also why it's so difficult to do and to do well. Yeah. The, um, there's, two or three pieces. I mean, I think the one I want to pull out of that one, the, um, I, I spend a lot of time looking at the transformations um, and the econ- economics across broad areas for climate change and mitigation and adaptation. One of the things around real estate is that the Eastern seaboard real estate in the United States has lost, uh, I think it's over billions of dollars of value already and it's projected mm-hmm. to lose a lot more. Now, this is really a weird conversation because you have to understand statistically, if it wasn't for sea level rise and the risks that have been occurring with, you know, greater storm surge and stuff, the house prices would be higher than they are. But in a lot of cases, the house prices are higher than they were. Mm-hmm. And it's especially everybody in Florida says, well, it's easy to if 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 this was really a problem, no one would be, be be buying these properties. But people keep yeah. buying these properties. Well, that's because they're not required. To your point, what you just shared with me, which doesn't surprise me about Florida, no one has to tell them mm-hmm. that there's a risk there. I, I'm reminded of um, a guy I worked with years ago. Um, amusingly enough, he and his uh, he had. In his spouse had bought a condo in the building literally across the street from where I'm sitting right now, um, when this used to be a much worse part of town. Um, and he'd come in on a Sunday afternoon for a nice viewing. It's a nice neighborhood, and it looked really good. And then um, sat, you know, uh, he, they moved in, and then they look out their window down at the brothel and the <laughs> prostitutes on the back porch of the old heritage home. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, oh, nobody told us about that. And we weren't here at the right time. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's the same kind of thing. And by the way, uh, I did read the entire contract when we moved in here. Um, I not only have anti-terrorism insurance, but this used to be one of the most debauched nightclubs in Vancouver and the brothel heritage home. There's three heritage homes that are actually also part of the strata lots, but they're all renovated and they're all nice and there's nice families living in them and stuff. But it's a brothel nightclub with anti-terrorism insurance is my condo building. That's amazing. I I like it. I know. (laughs) Um, So we've got about before you know both of us turn into pumpkins i'm sure um what i'd like to talk about now is the intersection of managed retreat 
disasters and COVID-19 because mm. we're in the middle of this, you know, just starting to unlock again and, you know, reduce our social distancing requirements. But it's a big impact for us. Um, you know, the I, I alluded to the challenges, the concerns that the four homes in Tuktoyoktuk wouldn't be able to be moved. But all the planning had been done, all the logistics were done, all they had, and the team that did it was a family moving company that were already physically um, interacting. So they were able to do it. But right now we can't open flood risk centers for people who get flooded in the, in the spring floods. We can't in Canada put in place an emergency shelter for them. And in the summertime, um, we're hearing very strong concerns about cooling shelters for the you know homeless and the people with and socio lower socioeconomic classes who can't afford air conditioning because they would become centers of viral outbreaks. Mm -hmm. um, so you know we have those challenges. One of the things we wrote into this is that you know when you our perspective on considering the risk is consider overlapping risks. You know, don't all, don't limit yourself to well. It's a it's a coastal floodplain, but look at all the different factors and the things which could occur as well. You know, yeah. One of the examples is out of Australia and out of Fort McMurray, massive wildfires followed immediately by massive flooding. Mm -hmm. Don't talk about them as separate things. They come right one right after, and they overlap. And right now, we're seeing COVID nineteen as an overlapping one. Are are you having those conversations in the United States with? your fellow researchers and the practitioners you speak to? Uh, at the University of Delaware, we actually have a, a PhD student at the Disaster Research Center, uh, Logan Gerber-Chavez, who's uh, starting some of her PhD research exactly on this, on how do people think and plan for compound disasters and, and disasters that are overlapping. Multi People talk a lot about multi-hazard planning, uh, but so far it seems that there's a lot of talk, but maybe not so much preparation or that they're willing to think about things like flood and landslide, but there hasn't been as much overlap from uh, natural hazards from the flooding or wildfires and these kind of other disasters like pandemics or terrorist events or other you know, types of disasters that could occur. Uh, so she's just starting that research, trying to dig into that. And one of the projects we're really interested in is how is COVID affecting floodplain disasters and emergency managers because all the reasons you just mentioned, you know, how do you evacuate people during a flood? How, where do they go, right? If hotels aren't open or if they're shut down, where do people go? Uh, we have all these travel bans in place or limitations in place. So can people cross state lines? Is this an accepted reason to cross state lines? How do we quarantine in place once we get them somewhere else? Uh, and and how do they socially distance afterwards? Or how do you think about social distancing in the recovery? And then how does recovery happen when community is a lot harder when you can't physically be with people? And the sense of community is really important to disaster recovery. So how do you maintain sense of community and people helping each other? You think about floods, you think about people out there putting sandbags on a wall together, you know, shoulder to shoulder. Uh, I guess now they'll be putting sandbags out six feet apart with masks and gloves, right? It's, it's a slightly different <laughs> environment. Um, we're seeing a lot of news reports on this. So as disasters are occurring, you know, towns are finding it harder to get volunteers to come out to clean up the debris after a tornado or to put sandbags in place because people are have been told to shelter in place. And so they're doing that. And it's... Uh, 
an area that I know people will learn from a lot. So I think the question is, can we learn the lessons quickly enough to put them in place this year? Uh, and certainly for future disasters, right? We always wanna prepare for the next one, but we also need to try and do things quickly to help with this one. So there's a lot of discussion about how these things are going to interact. And I haven't yet seen much conversation on how to solve the problems. So I'm hoping that the conversation will shift rather quickly from identifying the problems to how do we address it. And long-term, yeah, we have to do more of this compound disasters planning, more thinking about how these pieces fit together. Uh, and I hope also more thinking about the way our communities are designed. This is one of the reasons I'm really excited about thinking about retreat in particular is that when we think about community design and long-term planning for things, retreat in some ways is like wiping the slate clean and saying, what if we weren't bound up by the last, you know, 100 or 300 years of other people's development choices? What if we could start over again? Uh, and maybe, so maybe there's a role for retreat in rethinking how do we develop new communities and new communities that not only will change the way that we live with water or with wildfire or with other risks, but also how do we live with each other and with pandemics and diseases and you know, other types of risk. Um, so I hope there's an opportunity to rethink the way we have designed communities and the way we, we want to in the future. Maybe that's too aspirational, but I think you gotta have some hope, right? So <laughs> that's my, uh, my optimism. Well, I think that, you know, as I think through it, my hypothesis is at least, that the COVID-19 intersection with disasters will inform avoidance conversations and retreat conversations. Um, during this period, we had this overlapping problem that's very clear because, you know, people can see a, a fire followed by a flood mm -hmm. as two separate things, but no one can see COVID-19 happening during a flood mm -hmm. as two separate occurrences. And among other things, everybody wants to do what's right for the first responders. First responders mm -hmm. in floods and fire, they're here, our heroes, and we're putting them at risk by being in a place that's risky. Um, and so I think that conversation shifts um, in terms of the discussion about retreat as an option um, after this. But we have to remember to bring that conversation in as well. You know, it's yeah. part, you know, our guidance is to look for those overlapping disasters like COVID-19 and a flood and consider those during your risk planning so that, you know, you can make the appropriate decisions. And I think, you know, there, there has been, um, my observation in the United States and everybody's observation, a fairly partisan divide um, in the United States about its response to COVID-19. Um, you know, that's what all the polling from Pew and everybody's showing, and that's what the behaviors are showing. Um, you know, and it's what the cell phone coverage, um, cell phone dispersal rate stuff is showing. It, areas that are conservative are not distancing, they're not sheltering in place nearly as much. They have been diminishing and minimizing the risks and staying open past the time when it was appropriate and the reopening before it's appropriate to reopen. Um, but even there, you know, conservatives are now mostly in acceptance that coronavirus is a real thing um, and that it is a risk and that it's a risk to them and their loved ones. And so, you know, many of those people also live in areas which are 
subject to climate change as well. And I guess the point there is that climate change risks are increasing and accelerating. Over the next 30 years, we're going to see many more um, extreme weather events that have climate change, clear climate change fingerprints than we did over the preceding 30 years. Um, you know, one of my occasional correspondences, Catherine Hayhoe, I haven't spoken to her personally, um, but you know, we're on Facebook and exchange notes on Quora and emails and stuff. Um, Catherine Hayhoe is one of the authors of the National Climate Assessment um, for the United States. Um, so she's one of the co-authors of the thing which has been assessing the in radically increasing occurrences of flooding and strong storm events and things like that. You can just see the trend blowing up since the 80s in the United States. Uh, the rain bombs in Nebraska last year brought home climate change to a lot of Nebraskans and the people in the states around them, that climate change was about them too. Um, Monmouth polling found that the closer you are to the, the, the coast, you know, your area of focus, the more likely you are to accept that climate change is serious and has risks. So, but those risks are accelerating and people have problems understanding accelerating risks that are five years in the future. And to something you said, even people in Florida who live in Florida forget what it's like to evacuate the, you know, most of the state during a hurricane, and then they go back, and then they do it again a couple of years later. You know, the cognitive science of this and figuring out what will actually engage with people, it's, it's a fascinating space. And I'm hoping COVID-19 will be of value in terms of assisting to have better conversations about it. I hope so too. I, I think it it will certainly change the way we think about large national scale, slow moving, right? Hard to see disasters. And and the thing that comes to my mind as you're describing all these examples is, is personal experience. People who have a personal connection to something, if it's that they know someone who's been affected by COVID-19 or they themselves have experienced COVID-19, you know, they understand what's at stake a lot better than people who have to try to think about it in the abstract. Uh, and similarly, people who experience disasters, right, who have lived through that last hurricane, who know what it's like to have to go to an emergency shelter. They know what's at stake and they understand that. And I hope that we don't, I hope that not every single person has to experience, right, a disaster or a horrible thing happening before they will take preemptive action. Uh, but I think that that gives us an, Entree, which Catherine Hayhoe does so well at, at trying to personalize her discussions of climate change, providing good science, but then also finding common ground and common values. Uh, you know, just, just asking her faith and connecting with people who have a, you know Christian faith on what that means about taking care of the environment and climate change. And I think we can all do better at trying to find personal ways to connect with people on both sides of issues. Uh, with you know, finding co that common ground is really important. So, uh, there's a quote that I'm going to completely mangle, but it's apocryphal and it's been you know mangled multiple times before, so I don't feel too guilty. Um, you know, a smart man learns from his own mistakes. A wise man learns from the mistakes of others. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm just going to say that wisdom seems to be in short supply. In by many indicators right now. So I'm hoping that there's more wisdom rather than less in the coming years. 
Very much. I, th- I think we've, we all we all hope for some wisdom uh, for ourselves and our leaders in the coming the coming years. I, I, I don't know why. There's a date in November coming up in the United <laughs> States when I'm hoping a lot of wisdom occurs. Yeah. All right. And, and a lot of wisdom leading up to it as well. There will be, yes. uh, uh, yeah, lots of decisions to be made even before the election. Uh I mean, simple things like, you know, how we vote, or voting oh. through our mail-in or in person, uh, things like that. Getting people registered, I think, will be very important. Uh, I, well, I teach climate change, so I try very hard not to be partisan in my classroom, but it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a little difficult when, you're, when your class is cl- labeled climate change, right? Yes. Um, but but I, I try very hard to, to keep to the science as much as I can, even when discussing policy. But the one thing I always tell students is register and vote. Right. No, yes. no matter what, who you vote for, make your voice heard because our democracy only really works if people actually go vote. So I think that's my greatest uh, hope for November is that people show up or mail in or whatever the process is at that point and, and actually vote. Yeah, I, I think the um, electorate will be um, the, the wiser electorate. I'm just going to narrow it down to that <laughs> will be much more motivated to get out and vote in 2020 and they were in 2016. Um, I hope so. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to be clear. I I don't have, I, I I don't, I'm not a professor at a university, so I don't have to be circumspect. I just tell everybody to vote democratic up and down the ticket in the United States and liberal up and down the ticket and, you know, or liberal or the equivalent in our, in our provincial elections up and down the ticket because we need people who can deal with climate change and COVID-19 as adults, um, we definitely need uh, we definitely need a better plan on climate change. I think I can say that without, <laughs> without any concern about politics, right? But we definitely need more action on climate change, and we need it quickly, right? I mean, that's that's the consensus on it, and and even on the adaptation side, we talk a lot about the need for rapid action on climate mitigation, but all of our conversation today, right, has been on how difficult adaptation can be on all the policy, the cognitive, the social issues involved, the financing. There's so many systems that are involved. We're not going to suddenly decide in a four-year period, like, oh, we're going to adapt. And then that's done. Dust off our hands. We're good. We've adapted, right? It's, it's going to be a long-term process. And so the sooner we start it, the better. And we can't just keep putting it off and saying like, yeah, 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 we'll deal with that eventually, right? We need to be really, truly engaging with it now. Uh, so I think we need rapid action on climate mitigation, but we also need more recognition of climate adaptation and the need for it right now. Yeah, my fear um, is that Republicans will come to the table with you know a reversal and say, yes, climate change is real. Um, but their entire policy and platform will be adaptation um, and it'll turn into pork barreling projects that benefit a subset of the electorate, the subset of the electorate who votes Republican. Um, you know, I, I, I see that as a strategy that they could lean into uh, quite easily uh, given their history and, you know, that would enable them to throw a lot of money at states and at specific communities um, and gain a high amount of uh, respect and not do anything on the mitigation side, which is also so fundamentally required. Um, but Yeah, there's a difficult tension there, but I think we're, go- we're going to need action on both sides. So we will. Yeah. Um, 
we're doing so well in terms of talking about wisdom. And this is slightly, <laughs> of course, this entire last 15 minutes has been about COVID-19 and climate change. They're not happy subjects. Yeah. <laughs> and yet we're laughing. Um, yeah. so, you got to laugh. Otherwise, yeah. Yeah. So, Ciders, um, last minute or so, this is just an open-ended opportunity. You have... Um, an audience that's 50% in the United States, 50% spread around the world, uh, typically, you know, better educated, typically, you know, all, almost 100% climate change science acceptors and, you know, sophisticated in terms of mitigation and approaches and stuff. To that audience, you know, with that open-ended framing, what message would you like them to take away? Hmm. Gosh. Uh, well, I, I kind of like where we ended on taking action. I think too often uh, people who, who know climate change is, is real, they you know, are worried about it. We don't take action. We feel powerless. We feel like we can't do anything about it. Right. Uh, and so I would urge anyone listening to do something about it. Go to your local planning meeting or attend their Zoom meeting, you know, these days. Uh, get engaged. Learn about what development is happening. Is your community building in the floodplain? If so, maybe, I don't know, point out that that's not a great idea. You know, are we developing new houses in the wildfire, you know, burn area? Uh, are we developing in a way that will promote climate change or not? Uh, write to your politicians. Get activated. Um, you know, I... I don't worry so much about being hopeful as I think about getting angry and getting motivated. Like I'm, I get very frustrated by the way the world is and I hope other people are frustrated too. And I hope that we all take action on that. And I hope that COVID-19 is helping people recognize that everybody taking small actions can add up to a really large societal change. And so if we all did small things on climate change, we could also make a sea change. Uh, so I, I would urge everybody to to make your voices heard and to take action. Excellent. And to vote in November. And to vote. Yes. Um, thank you so much. Um, this is Michael Bernard, one of the hosts of Clean Tech Talks with Clean Technica. Uh, I've been speaking for an hour and a half with A.R. Siders, Juris Doctorate, Ph.D., University of Delaware's Disaster Research Center, and one of the foremost scholars on managed retreat um, in the United States and globally. Uh, it's been an excellent conversation. Siders, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. Really appreciate this. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, drop us a note. We are looking for more clean tech leaders to highlight on a regular basis as we fund Clean Tech Talk.